I have this door frame in the garage, and it's got all the little notch marks of all of our kids as they were growing. We had it at our old house, and uh, I popped it off and brought it to the new house when we moved. And so we've got them there, and each year on the kids' birthdays, we'll kind of mark how tall they are. And uh, if you've ever, if you remember being a kid and measuring yourself, how uh, impatient you were on your, on your own growth. And, you know, it, and it got worse the more often you measured yourself. In fact, you know, really your growth is something that's more noticeable over time, but it certainly isn't noticed day by day. If you measure yourself day after day, if you're a little kid and you stand up there and you, you put that little ruler by your head and you turn around and you look at that mark, you know, if you do that day after day, you're going to ask yourself this question. And you're going to be like, am I even growing? And I think that's a picture a little bit of what our spirit, spiritual life can be like what it's the walk of faith can be like as Christians uh, when we uh, kind of obsess over our own growth. It's like, am I, even, am I even growing? Am I even changing? Sometimes we can be frustrated with things that we, we struggle with in our lives and feel like there's just no progress. And ironically, living a life focused on growth, on our own growth, can't produce maturity because it's a focus on ourself. And maturity inherently is a focus on others. And so the irony of constantly obsessing over my own growth is I wake up every day and I keep asking myself how I'm doing. But maturity in its essence is to say, how are you doing? And it's impossible for me to be curved upward to God and outward to others when I'm perpetually curved inward on myself. This morning we're going to come to our reading, which is Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read a very familiar text, even for those of you who are here who might be new to church or new to the scriptures, you're probably familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. It's the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, or these these virtues. Uh, And I'm going to read this text this morning, but right before we read it, I just want to give you some context because we are coming in mid-conversation. The first four chapters, as we've been working through Galatians, week after week going through this letter, we find that the gospel is the good news of Christ's substitution. The false gospel comes in and says, no, his work wasn't sufficient enough. It needs a contribution from you. And Paul said, no way, and he fought against that. For those of you that are visiting with us uh, today, you haven't been here, we've been talking about the purpose of our rescue. I mean, why would God in his great grace rescue us? When we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is Christ lived the perfect life none of us could ever live. And regardless of your worldview this morning, you'd agree nobody's perfect. I mean, that's what we say, right? Nobody's perfect. And so we make this great mistake by saying, well, nobody's perfect. Therefore, God wouldn't expect perfection. He'd only expect our best shot at it. But the truth is God does expect perfection, not because he's a perfectionist, but because he himself is holy and he created, he created the world in that perfection. Sin brought damnation. And God's response to the damnation wasn't to blow up the earth and start over. It was to move in grace, to bring redemption. And now we're on this trajectory of restoration. That's the whole, that's the essence of the, of the whole narrative of the Bible. That's the meta arc of God's grace. Now, because God does expect perfection, Christ provided the perfection that God required. And his, his death means that our death isn't final. His resurrection means we have hope of a resurrection of life after death. And Christ's ascension means that now the Spirit of God descended when Christ ascended, and we, as those who've placed our faith in Christ, are full of the Spirit, and we live our lives in a process of renewal. Renewal 
and reorientation, all these beautiful things. So all of that's taken place before we get to this text I'm about to read in Galatians 5. Because that renewal looks like what it means to be truly free. And Paul starts this chapter by talking about freedom. It starts out by saying, for freedom, Christ has set you free. What is that freedom? And what does it look like? And now as we come to this text here, Paul starts to unpack, well, what does the truly freed heart look like? What does the truly freed soul look like? Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. This is God's Word. Now, Paul's gospel logic begins to paint a bit of a picture. It's that the gospel grips us, and then the gospel produces something in us. And as we become more like Christ, we're actually becoming more like ourselves. And that's what we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that the fruit of the Spirit is produced gradually, continually, and inevitably. I don't know if you've ever been uh, apple picking before. We've got some apple farms around here. And if you go apple picking and you, and you see this beautiful ripe apple on a tree, it would be weird to assume that that beautiful apple was giving life to the tree. It, that, that beautiful apple is there because the tree is giving life to the fruit. The false gospel, the false teaching in Galatia was that your, the great fruit of your life, the great fruit of what you're up to, is giving life to your faith. That's the false gospel. It's completely backwards. Whereas the gospel is that, no, it's because of your faith in Christ and that you are united to Christ in grace, that that rescuing grace has a reforming trajectory and it's going to produce something. It's going to produce it gradually, continually, but inevitably. And so as we look at this uh, picture, we see that there's something that's being produced. We're not saved by the fruit of our lives, but because we are saved, our lives will produce this fruit. So before I go on, I'm going to clarify something really quickly. There's a very famous passage in the letter to James where James writes, Faith without works is dead. Even if you're not a person that goes to church regularly or you're here and you're searching and seeking and you're not a person of Christian faith, you've probably heard that phrase, faith without works is dead. Or you've probably heard... um, 
that, that the letter to James talks about how a man is not justified by faith alone, but by his works. So I want to clarify something before I unpack this, because otherwise some of you are going to be thinking, I think the Bible's contradicting itself. So let's be really clear. If we put Paul and James in a cage match and make them fight to the death, there's something wrong with our theology. We already know that Paul and James agree, because back in Acts chapter 9, if you read it, there, there's a council and they all agree on the gospel. So they agree. So let's settle that fact. But Paul and James are writing for, to answer two different questions. Everything Paul wrote, this is Galatians, Paul wrote it, Paul is answering a question. The question Paul is answering is, what justifies you before God? James is not answering that question. James's question in James chapter 2, if you read it, is, what justifies you before man? That's a pretty massive difference. What justifies you before God and what justifies your faith claim before man? Paul is dealing with a, a, a horizontal situation. You are justified by faith in Christ alone. Period. James is dealing with a horizontal question, which is, well, you say you have faith, and now the guy across the street is looking for the evidence, and since the guy across the street is not God, what does the guy across the street have to go on? Your works. So if you're living a life that is producing absolutely zero fruit, and you're totally indifferent to the lordship of Jesus, that faith that you're claiming to have is totally dead. But that's a horizontal conversation about your life not demonstrating the, the great grace that's actually producing the beautiful fruit. Does that make sense? So James, the letter to James is a horizontal letter. It's talking about you've made a claim, because everybody jumps to James 2.24. Some of you are jumping there in your mind right now. But Paul, it says, look, I'm looking at it right now. I looked it up while you're talking. 2.24, it says, a man is justified by his works. Ah! But if you go back 10 verses to the context, James is saying, you say... You have faith. Okay, let's talk about that claim. And then he unpacks this. And he says, your claim is totally useless if there's no fruit. But it's not because you're saved by the fruit. Does that make sense? So Paul now is dealing with this fruit. The result of the power of the Spirit, of God's scandalous saving grace in our life, it actually has a sanctifying trajectory. Meaning, there's this great renewal. So let's unpack these three things. First, the fruit of the Spirit is produced gradually. If you look in verses 16 and 17, you're going to find that there's two natures at war. There is a civil war going on, right, between uh, our spirit and uh, our flesh. And there's a conflict. And the word desires in the Greek is the word epithemia. And Paul uses that word epithemia to talk about your desires because it's actually in the Greek, it's this overzealous, uh, controlling desire. I mean, it's driving you. So Paul's saying that there's a war going on inside us. And, you know, that, that epithemia, those desires, those, those drives, are not always for bad things. They can be. It can be for a bad thing or an immoral thing. But it can also just be for a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. We talk about that here at Redeemer often. It can be something that we're looking to to get our identity in and our fulfillment from. Right? It, we can make our family our God. And we can make uh, our relationships our God. We can make it that nothing is more important to me than this. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes for, for this thing to be intact because I'm getting all my identity from this relationship or from this family. We can make, that, we can make our marriages that. When you're, when you're newly married, you can put your, your spouse on a, 
uh, on, on a pedestal and make them God, make the marriage God. When you've been married for many, many years or for decades, you do it in a different way. The novelty is gone in the marriage, right? The novelty is gone, but, that, but what's, what remains, though, is that this desire to be like, I have these needs I need you to fulfill, and you're not fulfilling them, so I'm chronically disappointed in you, and you're chronically crushing me in the inability to be my God. So when marriage is novel, it's like, oh, you're the, you, know, you are my everything, and you complete me, and all this kind of thing. But over the decades, that still chronic, sinful, epithemia kind of nature causes tension and stress in our marriages because we can't be each other's gods. It's impossible to be each other's gods, but yet we can do it. Or those of you who are students, or maybe you've got friends who start dating, and, uh, and they start dating, and they vanish off, they're off the planet. You never see them anymore. It's like this relationship has consumed them. Their identity is there. Everything is there. You're like, hey, let's go have a coffee. But they're nowhere to be found because it's all of their fulfillment is being driven towards this thing. Or it can be, um, or, or it can be uh, things like our, our careers and our education and uh, pursuing uh, the affirmation and the accolades that come from that. There's nothing wrong with your careers. There's nothing wrong with your education. There's nothing wrong with being diligent and using the gifts that God has given you to flourish in the city and to use your gifts to make the city flourish and to make your family flourish. There's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth that you can use for the betterment of the city to serve your children and be a blessing to uh, those who have need. All of those are good things. But when they go out of the category of the good thing to the epithemia ultimate thing, they erode away at our souls. And they bring us to this place where all of our identities try to get located in them. And so Paul says there's, these, there's a conflict inside of us. And the reason for that is if you look at 16 to 18, verses 16 to 18 together, you're going to find the reason that the conflict is there is because they both want the same thing. The spirit and the flesh want the same thing. Lordship. That's what they're after. They want to be our Lord. The flesh says, don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what's wrong. I'll decide. Don't tell me that that's a sin. I'll decide. They both want the lordship. And of course, that was Eve's problem in the garden, right? When you read, when you read Genesis, what was our problem from the beginning? The problem from the beginning was, I'll decide. The pride in the heart, she looks at the fruit, and, she, and the Bible says she looked at it and saw that it was good for food, and she ate it, and Adam ate it with her. Remember that? But notice the key phrase there in Genesis. She said it was, she looked at it, and it was good. What did God call it? Death. You see that battle in the soul is that I'm willing to call good what God calls death. I have no problem with that if I want to be my own Lord. And so Paul says there's this huge conflict. It's a little bit like having a compass inside us. It's like having a compass where You've got geographical north and magnetic north, and they're not the same. Geographic north never changes. It's the North Pole. But magnetic north does change depending on where you are on the planet. And in the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ is like geographic north. It never changes for you. The, the grace of Jesus for you, if you've placed your faith in Christ, his love for you, is, it is unchanging. His commitment to you is faithful, even though you're not faithful, even though you weave in and out of of having him be Lord and having other things be Lord, that geographic north of God's grace remains constant. But the magnetic north of the poles of our hearts 
away from the lordship of Jesus to these other things is always kind of forever shifting. So Paul says, we've got this, this civil war going on in the soul. And it's not just about committing actions of sinful nature. It's about being controlled by the sinful nature. So Paul kind of juxtaposes these, these two things together. And what he's unpacking is he's trying to unpack what have you been saved from and what have you been saved for. So when you look at that list in verses 19 through 21, he gives this list of what our sinful nature produces. And they're not all actions either. If you look at that list, some of them are attitudes and motivations. And so he speaks to all these things, sexuality, false religion, witchcraft, destructions of relationships, substance abuse. But then notice the little phrase that Paul puts at the end. He says, and things like these. Did you notice that? That that teaches us something. It teaches us that we don't look at the list and go, okay, here's a list of things. Let's make sure I'm not doing anything on this list, because if I'm not doing anything on this list, then we're good. Paul just puts this little thing at the end, and things like this. His goal here is not to give us an extensive list of vices. He's provoking us to consider the extensive impact of being slaves to vices. And in fact, if you look at that list, you've done most, if not all, of the things on that list. I've done most, of the thi- most, if not all, of the things on that list in some form, in some way. If you if you're to sit there and unpack every word and be like, what does that word mean? And where in the Bible is that word exploded? We've done them all. All of us in this room, have, we've done them. In fact, there's many of the things in that list we're all going to do this week, if you're honest with yourself. I mean, there's, there's things on that list, envy, jealousy, unjust anger, rivalry. The odds of us going the next seven days and not, not having unjust anger, let's just pick that one. What are, what are the odds of that happening? I'll tell you, in case you're curious, there's zero in some way, in some form, at some point this week, we will think that we're better than someone or we'll think we're, we're worse, everyone's better than us. At some point this week, we will fall into one of those ditches of pride. Right? Now, the good news of God's grace is that despite, despite our sin, God's grace covers us, and in our sin, God's grace empowers us increasingly. So Paul gives us this list to, for us to recognize there's no difference, actually, There's no difference between any of the the sins that are in that list. God isn't ranking them. We rank them. Consequences, no question, right? There's certain things we could do this week. If we were to go out and have illicit sex this week, the consequences of that are going to be infinitely more grave than if our hearts are prideful. There's no question that there's a difference in the consequences of our sin. But there is no difference before God in the gravity of our sin. There's no difference. That's why Paul puts jealousy and orgies in the same sentence. Did you notice that? I know this isn't a very PG-13 section of the... We just went up to rated R, because now, now we're talking about orgies, but it's in the Bible, so let's just stick with the text and, and marinate in the gravity of this. Because we will tend to look at somebody, and because the air is so thin on our high horse, we would prefer that they would sin like us. Right? Well, I struggle with this particular sin, and it's not really a sinny sin, but what happens when you're sitting next to somebody who's doing something that, in your view, is a really sinny sin? Or somebody starts coming to Redeemer and says, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this home. I'm going to come to this. They talk about Jesus every week and his grace for me and my sin, and i got a lot of sinny sins, so I'm going to make this home. How are, you, how are you going to do with that? How am I going to do with that? Well, if we recognize that Christ is the great equalizer, we're going to be okay with it. But as long as you think that before God the sins are ranked... You're going to have a hard time 
having a coffee with the person who, in your view, isn't as good as you are. Now, the gospel is such a great equalizer because it reminds us that we're not better than anybody else and united to Christ. No one's better than us either. (laughs) We're God's kids. And his spirit is doing something in us. There is a renewal that is happening. There's a fruit that's being produced. And it's very gradual. Very gradual. And you might say, gosh, this is so gradual. I'm not even, I'm not sure it's happening. I look in the mirror every day. I measure myself every single day. And I don't feel like I'm growing in God's grace. I have good news for you. You are. You absolutely are. And I'll prove it to you. And I'll I'll tell you why. As this text unfolds. You notice that in verse 21, Paul says this shocking statement that probably made all of you swallow hard. And he says, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom. Okay. Now, if we just read that verse and we walk away, right? If you came in this morning and I read that verse to you, I said, these are all the things. And things like these. And if you do those things, you don't inherit kingdom. The word of the Lord, let's go home. You'd all be terrified. When we read this whole text together, here's what we recognize. Paul is not just warning against the actions alone. He's warning against the regular participation of these actions with no struggle. What's the context? The context isn't the actions. Read this whole passage. You look at it again. He says there's this battle. There's the struggle inside. There's what the Spirit wants. Notice what Paul says too if you reread it. It's actually what you want. Becoming more like Jesus is actually becoming more like you, the real you. This is the trajectory of grace. And he says, there's a struggle. There's a battle. You want what God wants when God's grace does something in you. But your flesh doesn't. And so there's a struggle. But then he says, now, if you practice these things and there's no struggle, there's no regeneration, which means you don't have a behavior problem. You have a gospel problem. See, if you're here this morning and you can just live indifferent to God, you can live indifferent to Jesus, you don't really care, you're like, I'm just going to kind of do what I want and God's going to accept me anyways and the life that I'm living isn't relevant because grace is like peanut butter. You just spread it all over your sin and you don't have to, you don't have to desire to not want to sin anymore. It just doesn't matter. That's not the gospel. That's called antinomianism. It means lawlessness. I mean, that's, so what Paul is getting at is, listen, Christians sin. The Christians in this room, every single one of us in this room, we're going to do things on this list this week. And if every time I say that, something, your inner Pharisee rises up and he says, no, I won't, I can't believe he's saying that, you're committing a sin right now. <laughs> called radical self-righteousness, that you're going to go seven days without sinning. Yes, we're going to. But we're not indifferent to it, we're not lackadaisical about it, I'm not being, I'm not being cavalier about it. What I'm saying is, if there's no struggle then that person doesn't inherit the kingdom. Because if there's no struggle, that means they haven't received God's grace. Because when you receive the saving grace of Jesus, your sin bothers you. That's not what grace is. That's what grace does. Right? It's what it does. So that's the good news. So for those of you who look in the mirror and you're like, I can't believe I'm, I feel like I'm not changing. I'm still struggling with this sin. It's like this got a vice grip on my heart. I hate it. I hate that I do it. I have good news for you. The spirit, that struggle, that angst, that anger as you look in the mirror, that is the spirit working right now. And he will continue his work. It's a gradual work. It's a continual work, but it is an inevitable work. It's, it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's assured. 
And so, when we're saved by scandalous grace, and our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, and God's favor comes towards us, minus our merit, and we're united to Christ apart from our performance, and we're set free from being a slave to the vices in our heart, our heart enters that process of regeneration. It's gradual. So let's move on to the second thing. The, this, the fruit of the Spirit is not only produced gradually, but it's com- produced continually. So you are united to Christ, friends. If you've placed your faith in Christ alone, you're united to Him. And that union has radical, implica- radical implications. He didn't save you from your sin to leave you a slave to it so that you would constantly be plagued by it. And there's an important emphasis here that we can't miss. And it's that this fruit of the Spirit, these nine virtues, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you don't produce those. Jesus, in His great grace, in you, is producing those by His Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Which is such great news that it is a continual work. It means it comes from a relationship. I can't have these virtues being produced in my life by the Spirit unless I belong to the Spirit. So in verse 22, when Paul's, Paul doesn't tell the Galatians to produce it. He tells the Galatians that the Spirit will produce it. Paul is not writing in the imperative form. He's writing in the indicative form. An imperative form means do this. An indicative form means God has done this. God is doing this. And it's the indicative form. Now, he shifts in a minute. I'm going to show you. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, aren't we supposed to do anything? Yes. But it's not what we think. What the Spirit is doing is producing these virtues in our hearts and in our lives. It's the Spirit's work. It's what he does. Right? We've got to belong to the Spirit of God. And that's by grace. That's by Christ's great work. That's by faith alone, apart from your performance. That's the good news. So Paul does give an instruction. But he doesn't say, create these virtues. He actually says, crucify your vices. It's in verse 24. If you look at it. He doesn't say, produce the virtue. You can't. How are you going to do that? But but what he says is, crucify the vice. So what is this? Let's unpack this for a minute. If If the vice of anger and control and jealousy is gripping our hearts... And you come in here, and I preach a sermon on how to be loving. That is not going to encourage you. That's going to crush you. Because there's some, the vice of anger and jealousy and selfishness has gripped your heart. And you can't put loving behavior on top of that vice. You're only going to leave and say, okay, well, but there's this thing that's gripped my heart, but I'm going to try and put all kinds of loving behavior on it and think that I'm going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. You can't produce the fruit of the Spirit because it's not your fruit. So what Paul says is, the Spirit produces this. You are invited into confession. You are invited to identify your idols and dismantle them by confessing. And in the power of that confession is the renewing work and power of the Spirit. He does what you can't do. And what you and I can do is confess, oh God, this thing is still gripping my heart. And in that confession, it's a gift of this beautiful renewing work 
of the Spirit. He talks about crucifying the vices. If I'm going to teach the fruit of the Spirit across the pulpit, or you're going to teach the fruit of the Spirit around your table, then the way for us to do that, there's a, there's an, uh, there's a helpful way and an unhelpful way. The unhelpful way would be to tell your children to, to be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, like develop that, because that's what the Spirit develops. But the helpful way would be to be, in order to have, to have in order for the, uh, to enjoy more of this, this is what the Spirit is doing. Our part is to identify and to confess where these vices are that are gripping us, that are, why do they get underneath the virtue? The Spirit produces the virtue, but I can get underneath the virtue and confess the vice. Does that make sense? That's why Paul, in verse 24, he says, this is what you do. And it's a funny, it's an interesting language in 2017 to read it. Crucify, you know, the flesh. It sounds like, what does that mean? The surface reading, it's like, are we being invited to be, you know, monastics? Uh, what does this mean? Well, I, I used to work in uh, Holstein barns in southern Ontario for a couple of years. And I would come out of those barns and I smelled like a barn, let me tell you. There was no doubt where I had been working all day. My coveralls were covered in manure. It was very clear that I had would come from a barn. And I was running a youth program at the time. And so, you know, sometimes there was no time. I literally went from the barn to the church with no shower. I went from the barn to the church, took the coveralls off, went into my office, put a different change of clothes on and went in. And you want to know something? Nobody was fooled. I mean, I had tried to put new clothing onto... There was a vice underneath. So that's why Paul's like, Christ will clothe you. Christ's grace is clothing you. The Spirit is doing a work in you. He is producing fruit in you. It's gradual. It's continual. It will be. It is inevitable. You need to confess the vice. And in the identification and the confession, because there's honesty, right? If somebody comes up to me and goes, does something smell funny? And if like, no, 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 everything's fine. Don't you see the clothes that I'm wearing? Yeah, but I'm pretty sure I smell something's up. No, 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 no. Only stinky sinners smell like that. But as you can see, I'm not one. Really? Are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure I smell something. No, you don't. You see this? That's a picture of a Christian, of our Christian faith when we think it's our job to produce the fruit of the Spirit and we neglect the confession of the vice. That's why Paul says, I'm not going to invite you into doing what you're never going to be able to do. Only the Spirit can do that. But I'm inviting you into this gracious confession and renewal. And the Spirit is doing a gradual work and he's doing a continual work. And this is not coming to church each week saying, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a worm. It's the opposite. It's saying, I'm a child of God. Yes, I struggle with my sin. Yes, there's sins that have fallen off quickly. Yes, there's sins that still plague me today. Yes, there's sins I may struggle with my whole life, but I am God's child. Jesus and his great grace has saved me, and I desire to live to the glory of that grace. Of course I'm falling all over myself. Who isn't? But I'm his kid. It's not a confession that we're a worm. It's a confession that we're united to Christ, and that union has implications and it is doing something in us you see because to become more christ-like is to become more of who we actually truly are the gospel logic in all of paul's letters is not do this in order to become that the gospel logic is you are that in christ now live according to who you actually are You see, you were created in dignity by God. You were created in God's image. You are an image bearer of God. 
And sin has destroyed all of us and our ability to just live out in that, the purity and the love and the, and the dignity of our original state. But the Spirit is now renewing us. So Paul is inviting us to be who we truly are. Yes, you look in the mirror and you say, but I don't see the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. That doesn't describe me 24-7. The good news is, that is actually who you truly are. And Christ is restoring us by his grace to that. You can't produce it. You can't do it. So it brings us to confession. It brings us to what? Humility. So that the person who comes in here, who has no virtue in their life, we don't look at them and go, <laughs> one day, when you get your act together, young Padawan, you will be like me. It's, just, it's not going to enter our psyche. We're going to look at that person and go, that's me. You know? It's still me in some way, in some form. That's me. And so the love and the grace and the compassion can flow and not the comparison because it's the spirit that does the work. It's the spirit who's doing it. Verse 24 reminds us that we must belong to Christ. We, to, to crucify the flesh and to do this, it's, it's this beautiful, act, it, it, it's a combination. Paul gives us, there's a passive work, that's what Christ did. There's an active work, and the active work is the Spirit empowering us to, to confess. Which leads us to the final thing. And it's that the fruit of the Spirit is produced inevitably. It's gradual, it's continual, but it is inevitable. Right? It is inevitable. Paul uses language, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he juxtaposes those two words on purpose. Our flesh does works, the Spirit does does the fruit. So Paul is not interested in outside-in Christianity. Paul isn't interested in saying, hey guys, stop doing the things on this list and start doing the things on that list. Be intentional. That is not what Paul was doing because we can't produce what the Spirit produces. He's getting underneath the action for us to consider our motivations. And you'll notice that there's nine virtues, but he uses a singular noun. He doesn't say the fruits. You know, you say go to the grocery store and get some fruits and vegetables. Fruits is the plural word. But Paul, in the English, it's singular, and in the Greek, it's singular, and it's intentional. Nine virtues, one fruit. Why does he say that? Because it points us to the singular reason it's being produced. The singular fruit is produced by a singular reason, and that singular reason is the Spirit of God. Because we're his children. It's because he is doing it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit yeah, working, to, working in our life to produce what we could never produce. It is an inevitable work. And I don't mean inevitable in terms that we're going to be perfected in this lifetime. We won't. Our perfection is in the resurrection. Jesus Christ was humanity perfected. Our struggle is real, of course, but our renewal has begun. So as I close, here's the good news for you, church. The good news is that we are free from the vices that keep us from loving God and our neighbor. We are free from being slaves to those things. We have a freedom in the Spirit that is now producing these virtues in us right here and right now. He is doing it to love God and to love our neighbor. In the same way that the roots of a tree will break through concrete to get to the water in a swimming pool, the Holy Spirit's work in you is gradual and continual, but is it, event, it is eventual. He is breaking through the concrete of the sin in our hearts that keeps us from loving God and keeps us from loving our neighbor. He is doing it by His grace. Because the truth is, the things that are not like God are not like you either. And by His grace, He is doing this great work. It's gradual and it's continual, but it's inevitable.
Let's pray.